Hey, everyone, I want to invite you to a writing event that is coming up, a somewhat unknown writing event. Um, you know, at NaNoWriMo, we're so well known for National Novel Writing Month that happens every uh, November that sometimes people don't know that we do writing events throughout the year. And one special event is Camp NaNoWriMo. We have sessions of it in April and July. And it's, it's just like NaNoWriMo, except it's a more casual version of NaNoWriMo. We believe that a, that a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife, and a goal and a deadline is at the heart of Camp NaNoWriMo, except you don't have to write 50,000 words of a novel. You can come on our site, and if you want to write 10,000 words in the month of April, uh, you can set a goal of 10,000 words. If you want to write a poem a day or a piece of flash fiction a day, you can do that for Camp NaNoWriMo. There's just many different ways you can participate, but the core of NaNoWriMo is there. You know, we provide inspiration and motivation and resources and most importantly, a community of writers to help galvanize you. So our next session of Camp NaNoWriMo is happening in April. So please sign up for it and enjoy writing whatever you want to write. Welcome searchers, travelers, voyagers, and lovers. If you're longing for a good story or interested in delving into the nature of longing and how it shapes our stories, you're in the right place. I'm Grant Faulkner, Executive Director of National Novel Writing Month and, and one who often longs for things I can't have and likely never will have. And I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner. And Brooke, the reason I'm mentioning longing and somewhat fixated on longing is because of Madeline Lucas's novel, Thirst for Salt, uh, which is a book of longing for love, longing for a place, and longing to understand. It's it's such a beautiful lyrical book, and it made me think about how longing forms most of our lives in many different ways. So it's almost a genre unto itself. And when we think of longing, um, we oftentimes think of it being wrapped up in romance. But I think it's broader than that. I'm thinking of how um, an intense longing for a thing or a person, an experience, a life, something from the past, something out of reach, drives a story or character. And and the kind of longing I'm thinking about is different than desire also. I think, I think desire is an itch that wants to be scratched and longing is the ache that accompanies the deep love that, you know, lives in your heart. So, so what does longing mean to you, Brooke? Well, that's a really beautiful way of putting it, Grant, because <laughs> I totally agree with that, especially that, that ache part. And I thought about how desires are achievable, but the things we long for are often unattainable, or there are complicated obstacles in place, you know, such as time or distance. And often we yearn to go back to a place in the past, um, you know, or we long to be with someone who is far away, right? So again, time or distance is the obstacle. Uh, and I was thinking that longing is also maybe deeper than desire, like desire exists in the realm of choice. And so even if you can and do feel uncontrollable desire, it's not the same as longing, right, which is that ache part that takes root in your being. And so in that way, it's very existential, you can't just turn it off or chase it away. So I think you're totally right that this is a genre unto itself. And maybe it's just the human condition, right? How we long for things and the way that we think about longing. And if, if it is an ache, it can also become an obsession of sorts. And so mm -hmm. it probably is fodder for all kinds of good stories. So um, I'm curious, Grant, you know, when we think about books of longing, you know, I, do you think that they help you cope? Yeah, I think oftentimes that's one of the primary purposes of a, of a novel uh, about longing or that includes longing. And, and most novels actually include longing of some sort, I think. Um, but, but you know, immersing yourself in that longing does help you understand your own lo longing, I guess, and experience it. And, and 
longing, you know, is kind of a nice thing <laughs> to experience too. I'm not sure if I ever, you know, truly want to get over it. Um, but it, but it carries with it an idea of a, of a type of utopia lost, I guess, or utopia searched for. We're mythologizing something and making it larger than life through our longing. So we're, we're fictionalizing it um, and living through a projected story and creating an idea of life that is really impossible in the end, I guess. Um, and perhaps this is why longing is such a part of storytelling and fiction. The only way to experience any sort of reality of longing is through the act of the imagination. And that imagination helps us travel through, through distances. And Thirst for Salt actually opens with one of my favorite quotes about longing and distances. The, the poet Robert Haas wrote, Longing, we say, because desire is full of endless distances. And, and longing is formed by those distances. And, and to give an example, I'm, I'm thinking of The Great Gatsby, which I thought might be a good example for everyone, since most people know the story in some way. And Gatsby spends his entire life longing for Daisy, not only to return to their early idyllic days of love, but because she represents a better life, a perfect life, a life that he's never had and, and really can't have because of his class, for one thing. But he spends his lifetime accumulating money in any way he can just to get Daisy and to prove his worth and to create that perfect life. It's not possible, of course. And then the novel is really about how our longing can be a, a bad guide because we readers see the emptiness and the moral corruption of that perfect life that Gatsby romanticizes in the, you know, the mess of a life that Daisy and her husband, Tom Buchanan, create. So our longing can can feel, I think it just feels so powerfully true, but it's also a story to decode and question, you know, since, since it is one part fiction. So Brooke, I, I thought we could take this a step further and mention, you know, the great stories of longing that come to mind, you know, novels or memoir. And in, in memoir, I was thinking about how Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking shows how longing is actually a part of grieving. You know, you're longing to know what happened. You're longing to be with the person who died again. And you're longing through that essential conflict um, at the heart of longing that, you know, that there's a presence that is also absent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Joan Didion is a master and that's such a good book, you know, and all those ways of thinking about longing, longing for a presence that will never materialize again, you know, just so many layers. And I, I think most of us are nostalgic. And I love what you said about sort of mythologizing something or making it bigger than life, because I think that happens in our minds. And it can be one of the reasons that we gravitate toward, th th well, longing in the first place, but also thinking about longing and unpacking longing. And I think that happens a lot in memoir. Uh, but was fun about your question, Grant, is that obviously it's in our show notes. And so you're prompting me to look up books about longing. And there are actually innumerable lists. And so I got to look at those books and the ones that I've read and think about uh, which ones I, I loved and which ones, you know, really centered longing for me, because sometimes a book can be about something or touch upon a theme, but maybe that's not the thing that's most resonant to you. But one that jumped out to me most strongly was Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, because it had an enormous impact on me when I read it. And longing oozes from that story. It's so epic, so tragic. And there's so much in there about unrequited love and longing and the things we can't have. And I read it years ago, and I realized that I need to read it again, because what I was thinking about is like, I've gotten older, years have passed, and I have more personal experiences of my own love and loss. And I think there would just be more personal connections to be made. And I love novels, of course, that really, really dive into those human emotions that we really 
suffer through and then we get to the other side of if we're lucky. And I was sort of laughing, Grant, when you said that you like it and you never want to lose longing because it's actually painful. But I also know that if you never experience it, there's a loss there as well. So it's a real paradox, you know, the ways that we can sort of experience sweetness in pain. Uh, so I, I just wanted to make sure to mention that, you know, the nature of paradox. And, and memoirs, of course, are often about longing, as I said, you know, sometimes longing for what a memoirist might not even be sure of. Like, so for instance, I was thinking about Danny Shapiro's inheritance because she's really longing for something that she's longed for her whole life, which is to know what is wrong because there's a secret in her family and she can't quite put her finger on it. And then she realizes finally that the secret is her, that she had a different biological dad. And it's something that she's always known slash not known to be true, that she's different and and so that's profound. And then I was also thinking about Ashley C. Ford's book, Somebody's Daughter, and the longing in that book is for a father who's in prison, the waiting, and speaking of the castles that you build in your mind for someone when they're not present in your life, because of course, the real person can never live up to the one that you make up in your mind. And so in that way, there's a deep seduction that can happen when we build someone up to be more than they are, uh, because they're not there to be real. And so I think these are really interesting and powerful themes to explore in fiction and nonfiction alike. So uh, Grant, how about you? What books popped off the, the list yeah, as you were speaking, I was thinking about the conflicts longing presents and how we might really want one thing, yet we don't do what we need to get that thing. And I was thinking about Odysseus. Um, you know, the whole story is about how he yearns to return home, and it's about his, you know, desires and efforts to return to Penelope. Yet Odysseus is so in love with adventure and, and that he stays on the island with Calypso for seven years and keeps getting delayed. And I, I bet if all of us really think about it, we have a longing that feels powerfully true, yet we somehow undermine the realization of that longing because of other needs and desires. Our our longings kind of collide in a way, or the, or the present tense can speak louder than our longing. And, you know, I also was thinking of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and that, but I was thinking of Love in the Time of Cholera um, as a story of longing. And I can't give it a synopsis of the entire novel, but but it's it's dramatic because for 51 years, nine months, and four days, Fermina Daza and Florentino Ariza don't speak a word to one another. Then following the death of Fermina's husband, Florentino decides to remind her that he has always loved her. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the plot of Love in the Time of Cholera is about longing and learning to wait and about perseverance and endurance and about never forsaking the object of one's love. You know, it's an, it's a real idealized story of longing and it's it's about eternal fidelity and everlasting love in the end, I, which is kind of similar to Gatsby in its way, I suppose. And Brooke, on that note, I, I just want, since you mentioned that books of longing can often be books to to cope with, or we had that discussion, I thought of a quote from one of my favorite memoirs of longing, Bluettes by Maggie Nelson, in which she wrote, for to wish to forget how much you love someone and then to actually forget can feel at times like the slaughter of a beautiful bird who chose by nothing short of grace to make a habitat of your heart. And I think that's what I was getting at when I was talking about we don't necessarily want longing to go away. Go away. I think as you as you mentioned, there's there's something really sweet and nice about that very peculiar and painful ache. So our longings can become sacred. You know, they become such a part of who we are that that to forget can feel like murder. 
And perhaps that's why we have stories like The Great Gatsby and Love in the Time of Cholera to spend a life remembering love and, and nourishing a longing that is its own type of marriage. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because even as you talk about longing, as we're unpacking longing, I'm feeling that ache in my chest. You know, it's quite easily accessible to us as human beings. And I think that's why it continues to be a subject that is so readily there for memoirists and novelists alike to unpack. And Madeline Lucas has done this with her new novel. And so I'm really excited to talk to her about this subject and more, which we will do when we come back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce Madeline Lucas, who is the author of the debut novel, Thirst for Salt, which is just out this month, and uh, a senior editor of Noon. She was raised in Melbourne and Sydney as the daughter of a visual artist and a rock and roll musician. In 2015, she moved to New York to complete her MFA in fiction at Columbia University, where she now teaches in the undergraduate and graduate writing programs. Her essays and interviews have appeared in publications such as the Paris Review Daily, The Believer, Literary Hub, and Catapult, and her fiction has been awarded the Elizabeth Jolly Prize and the Overland Victoria University Emerging Writers Prize. And she now lives in Brooklyn with her husband and her dog, Poncho. Welcome, Madeline. Thank you so much, Grant and Brooke, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to start off by by helping uh, listeners kind of understand or, or or be able to you know see your novel if they haven't read it yet. Um, and I want I was poking around on Goodreads and I found this very charming review that takes the form of a poem. So I, I was wondering if I could read it to you and then have you kind of tell the story of your novel through it, if that's possible. Sure, I can do my best. Um, okay. That sounds fun. <laughs> cool. I thought it encapsulated the blurbers, Leslie Jameson and Heidi Julevitz, who wrote really nice things about your book, really lyrical descriptions. And so this is a from Goodreads, to the lovers of a nice nin and Henry Miller, the Lolita enthusiast, the person who loves a story that creates such atmosphere, your own skin feels touched by it. This is a love story, doomed and faded as it is. A story about eating love and expecting it to sustain you, even with your stomach growling. Walking in boots too big in weather and smoking cigarettes like an old movie star. I truly loved it. I lamented it too. Memories of my own lost love edging edging their ways to the surface. A story in retrospect and so moody I never knew when I was reading and I was sleeping. I remember it though, like a memory or a dream or both. Grab it if you like poetry and smaller, more secret parts of ill-fated love. What do you think about that review? Oh, it's so beautiful. Um, Wow. I feel amazed to be read in such a, um, yeah, in such a deep way. Um, And I feel like it speaks to so many of the things that, you know, I was hoping to do or trying to do with this book. And as a writer, you never really know if they've walked or they land until the book is in the hands of readers. Yeah. So um, I'm very touched by that response. 
Thanks for reading that, Grant. And I don't I don't think we've ever had a guest have to respond in real time to one of their reviews. So that was kind of a fun start. Thanks for playing along, Madeline. Uh, you know, one thing I find fascinating is how intentional about exploring a type of intimacy you were, you know, the first experience of adult intimacy when you can reasonably envision building a life together. Mm-hmm. And so you're not young, but not exactly old. And it's a type of first love, but different from the throes of teen love. So could you tell us more about why? this type of intimacy drew you and what you learned about it along the way? Yes, definitely. Um, I love that question because writing about intimacy is something I've thought about a lot. And, you know, when I first came to writing this novel, I was thinking a lot about heartbreak as an experience that defines the self and a kind of pretty universal human experience as well. I think I'm one that, um, speaks to much larger existential themes about grief, about longing, about memory. So over the course of the writing process, what I found, though, is that my interests changed and I became less interested in the end of the relationship and its aftermath and more interested in this kind of daily experience of living with someone, of sharing a domestic space. And to get a bit personal with you, you know, during that time, I was also newly married myself and kind of setting up a new life with my husband in the US after we moved here from Australia. So I think to me, that kind of daily experience of love ended up kind of having a lot more charge. And I think that first experience of adult intimacy, when maybe you're living with someone for the first time, or you can kind of picture what it would be like to build a life together. That can be just as formative as false love, but I felt like I didn't see it represented in literature as often. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well, Madeline. Um, it was so interesting for me to think of it as a type of first love. You know, I guess we, got, we, have, we have to define different types of first love <laughs> throughout life, perhaps. And, and when I read your book, I, I, I thought of one of my favorite Robert Haas quotes which I then found you used as an epigraph to this novel. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it really sums it up in many ways for me. The, um, longing, we say, because desire is full of endless distances. And I, I know that distance played a role in your writing this book. You were, you were living in New York City away from Australia. So how did that longing for place guide your writing and perhaps even guide your exploration of intimacy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do think of Thirst for Salt, the novel, um, which also does draw its title from that same Haas poem, Meditations at Lagunitas. I really do think of it as being charged by my own feelings of homesickness, uh, living away from Australia for the first time. And, you know, all of the things that are unique about that environment and that landscape, they kind of crystallized for me once they were no longer so present in my everyday And so I think one of the really interesting things that I found was how powerful that element of distance could be. And in fact, I think that distance in the case of the novel, you know, both me writing about Australia from so far away and also the narrator looking back on this formative relationship when so many years have gone past, that that distance was actually a way to access immediacy. 
thanks for sharing that. And the other thing we wanted to talk about was just the fact that it's, so, well, it's more than a love story, which we were just talking about, but there's so much it does speak to home loss, memory, mother-daughter relationships, mm-hmm. uh, and then your main character often looking back through her mother's past and her grandmother's too, to see how she's come to these decisions. So it really brings to light these many different things that influence our model for life and love. Uh, so I'm curious if you could talk a bit about why you chose to focus so much on family. Yeah, so I knew from the beginning that I did want to write a love story because as I was saying before, I think that the love story can be a way to get at these kind of larger existential truths about grief and memory and longing. But I don't think that you can get at love or what it means to love through romantic relationships at all. So I really wanted the narrator's relationship with her mother, with her much younger half-brother, to play a role in the story as well, um, to kind of show these different portraits of love, like the complicated bond you can have with a parent or the maternal feelings you can have towards a much younger sibling. Well, and to follow up on that point, just in terms of how to write that kind of thing, I mean, I'm certainly not looking for a craft lesson here, but when Grant and I were talking before you came on the show, I was really uh, mentioning this idea of like feeling the ache of longing, you know, and it's such a universal human experience. And it's a paradox because it's painful, but it's also sweet mm-hmm. in a way. And I was curious if you could speak to the the sort of bodily sensations informing craft, if that is a qu- question I can ask is coming up for me. Like, how do you how do you express that on the page? And, you know, are you are you able to tap into it? Or, or does it come from a more intellectual place? Yeah, that's a, a great question and definitely like a complicated one to answer. Um, but I do think that there is something so bodily about feelings of longing and desire. I mean, even the u- words we use to describe those experiences. And I love the way in that review that you read at the start, Grant, I think the person who wrote it said something about it's a novel about eating love and wanting it to sustain you. Mm-hmm. And that's what really appealed to me about the title, First for Salt, um, and that line in the Hass poem is this idea of a longing for something that cannot ultimately sustain you, which felt so core to the central relationship. But thinking about these terms like hunger or like thirst, which we use um, as different words to talk about desire and longing. Um, so that was something I was thinking a lot about in the text. And then I think the other side of that was wanting to try and evoke a sense of place with as much immediacy as possible. Um, And to me, that really came down to recalling specifics, um, naming trees, naming birds. And again, part of that was just me wanting to be in touch with that place again and write my way back there. Yeah, it's interesting that since you mentioned the details of capturing a space when you're distant from it, it made me think, I forget where this came from, but but Hemingway wrote about that, like how he was better able to write about his childhood home and or experiences in Michigan when he was in Paris. Did that work for you as well, that the distance helped sharpen your perception? Definitely. The distance felt really generative. And, you know, I, I did go back to Australia at points when I was working on this novel. And I should say as well that the setting of the book Sailor's Beach is a fictional town, but it was based on on an area on the south coast of New South Wales where I spent time as a kid on holidays with friends and family. And that was helpful for the specifics to go back and kind of remember, oh, that's what 
that's what plants are there. That's what birds are there. But I found there's something to me about being up too close that you can't really see the whole picture. So I think for me, and maybe this comes back to the idea of longing too, that I write much better about a place once I've left it. Hmm. Well, you know, Madeline, when I was researching uh, for this interview, we, we, we share several favorite authors I discovered, which is which is wonderful. I love sharing favorite authors. And I read how you turned to Sigrid Nunez's The Friend for Comfort, and that's definitely one of my favorite novels. And, and then how Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping guided your writing, and I'm a big fan of that novel or beyond fan. And, and you mentioned that Robinson helped you sustain the attention to language that you love so much about short fiction in a longer work. And I go back and forth between short and long. And it's interesting to me how my short work informs my long work more than vice versa, because the short work is where I tend to find the poetry. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to Marilyn Robinson's influence, especially since this novel grew out of a short story and it has its lyrical. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I love so much about short fiction is that it really can be a form driven by language. You know, plot can kind of take a back seat. And I definitely don't think of myself as a writer who is motivated by plot uh, necessarily. So I think I had a lot of hesitations and anxieties about whether or not I could write a novel. Um, I think it was a little bit of getting in my own way. And then I read Housekeeping quite early on in the process when I was still thinking this project would take the form of a series of interconnected stories, which is also a form that I love and deeply admire. And then reading that book, I saw that it is possible to sustain that lyrical language um, over the space of a novel. And what I also got from that book was, you know, such a strong sense of place and also characters, characters that stayed with you and that you cared about, which I think can absolutely happen in a short story, but in a novel, you just get to spend more time with them. And so the form of a novel started appealing to me because I feel like when I write a short story, I have to kind of invent characters and invent a world from the ground up every time. But with the novel, I could live in that space and linger in it a little bit longer. And, you know, Sailor's Beach, the old house, these are the places that I found myself wanting to go back to on the page. Hmm. Well, Madeline, we're coming to our final question and we want to talk about uh, influences and the influences that authors have. And uh, part of the way an author can influence you is to give you permission to write in a certain way. And Mm -hmm. I read that Joan Didion not only helped you to give permission uh, to value your story, but also that she showed you how style was substance. And so since we Mm -hmm. talk a lot about permission uh, in this show and, you know, obviously honoring uh, Joan Didion just in general, can you talk more about her role in your writing? Definitely. I think that I came across her work for the first time um, at a really important moment in my life when I was you know, 23, I was a young woman wanting to write, but not really sure if my perspective had value. You know, I suppose still living in a culture where women's voices and perspectives are often questioned. Um, And she wrote about the world with such authority, but in a way that felt so specific to who she was and her own experience. Um, So I think that just gave me a way of, yeah, I suppose I would call it permission um, to write the world as I saw it too. Well, thank you. And and do you feel like you have a, I mean, would you say that she's your biggest role model or do you feel like you have others that you would 
want to name before we end today? Sure. Um, I think that with Joan Didion, I felt like she gave me permission to write from a place of personal experience. But of course, I mean, with a first novel, I feel like part of it feels like it's it's influenced by everything you've ever read, watched, witnessed, experienced, and kind of all boiled down into this one work. Um, but, you know, Grant mentioned Sigrid Nunez before, um, and I did read The Friend several times while I was working on this book because there's an important dog character in First Assault. <laughs> and I love the way that Sigrid Nunez in The Friend captures that kind of intimacy between animals and people. And that felt important to me too, because as I said before, I don't think we can kind of get at what it means to love through romantic relationships alone. And I think it's often our relationships with our pets that teach us the value of loving, even when we're not guaranteed to get anything in return. And even when that means inevitably risking loss too. Wow, so interesting. Thank you so much, Madeline, and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much for having me. It was so great to talk with you both. Thank you, Madeline, and good luck and congratulations. Thank you so much. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Brooke, it feels important to follow up on two previous trends for those listeners who appreciate our trends but don't follow the publishing industry. So this is a where are they now moment. We want to share two ongoing stories. One is that a deal has finally been reached in the HarperCollins strike. You know, it was a three-month showdown that came to an end in February with HarperCollins agreeing to raise the minimum salary to a whopping $50,000. And a one-time whopping $1,500 lump sum bonus will also be paid to union employees. Uh, the other news story we followed down a rabbit hole, which then got chewed up and spit back, <laughs> is the Simon & Schuster story. They desperately wanted Penguin Random House to be its buyer, you know, to create Penguin Simon Random House Schuster. But the DOJ uh, blocked that merger, and now they're back up for sale. So for anyone who's in the market to buy a Big Five publisher, Simon & Schuster's on the block. What do you think, Brooke? If you had the money, <laughs> would you buy Simon & Schuster? I don't think I would be the right publisher for Simon & Schuster, even if I had the money. But I do think it's curious that speculation is that it might well be bid on by another of the big five. I mean, my God, can you imagine? And then we'd go through that whole thing all over again. Uh, but apparently they're courting private equity firms, which makes sense. You know, But these are always stories worth following because of who ends up buying giant publishers or any giant media company for that matter. The fact that Rupert Murdoch owns HarperCollins is 
is not inconsequential. This is the same man, the same news conglomerate that owns Fox. You know, we consume media and content, and it's a good idea to look at who's behind what we consume. And it's interesting to note that HarperCollins' revenue was down 14% in quarter four last year, uh, and earnings were down 52%. It's a huge hit. And yet the negotiations on that labor deal were drawn out for so long. And so this is admittedly speculation, but I'm quite sure that the big wigs at Harper did not like that they were being held over a barrel. And I'm positive that they thought they could outweigh the union and that eventually those people would decide to go back to work. Uh, so I think this is a big win and it's important to know about and to track these developments because we're in a place of agitation in this country and in the world right now. And some of the old power strongholds are being upset in this process. And that's, you know, the reason for the agitation in the first place, right? So there's just a lot of stuff that is consequential to how we think about media and what we read and what we consume. Yeah, as you're talking there, Brooke, I'm, I'm getting inspired that maybe you and I should start a GoFundMe to buy Simon & Schuster. <laughs> 2.2 billion. We can do it. <laughs> we can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're right. What happens in the world of book publishing and television and media large has huge consequences for all of us because at the heart of this conversation is the question of what we take in and, and that shapes how we think about things. And if you look at the giant oversized influence Fox News has had, for instance, and in, in how many people in this country believe that the election was stolen... And now we're watching this massive $1.6 billion lawsuit by Dominion voting system, you know, who's, who's effectively showing that Fox knew it was lying. And these are the real world consequences of, of who owns the, the company. It's, it's the stuff of truth and lies of, you know, who controls the world order. You know, it's the stuff that our best fictions uh, are built upon. Yeah, so much. And so thanks for bringing this recap grant uh, and the sort of where are they now stories. It's interesting to know and to follow up. Listeners, if you have $2.2 billion, <laughs> you could buy Simon & Schuster. And please, I mean, it would be so great to have a book lover scoop up that business. I love the idea of the GoFundMe. I mean, why not, right? And uh, to the Harper employees, congratulations. You held strong and to good results. And I think that gives us hope, you know, to have the underdog having a voice and standing up for what's right. And we are also standing up for what is right in literature, in writing, in fiction and nonfiction, and in the writerly world in general, where sometimes things just feel really hard and discouraging. But sometimes things also feel beautiful and flowing and expansive. And that is why we're on the ride with you every week, week in and week out. So thanks for being with us this week, and we'll see you next week.